None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast, Kratom Science Journal Club, or on any page of KratomScience.com is intended, nor should it be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is Joanna Bernstein. She's a journalist originally from Pittsburgh, now in Oregon. She's written about immigration, harm reduction, and drugs, including her own recovery from opioid addiction. She says Kratom saved her from a relapse after being denied pain medication. Uh, Links to her articles are in the description. I'm just curious as to um, how you ended up in Oregon from uh, Pittsburgh. Well, I ended up in Oregon. I've lived out here twice. I first came out here, it's probably like 12 or 13 years ago to get my master's in city and regional planning from the University of Oregon. I was super young. I was like right out of undergrad. So I was like 22. And um, I just, I had spent a little bit of time out West before the San Juan Islands in Washington state. And I just, I just like the vibe out here. And it was a, it was a solid looking program and I got in and I was like, all right, I'm going to Oregon. And then, so I was out here for like three years from, I guess it was like 2012 to 2015. And then, you know, went back to Pittsburgh and then um, came back out here again for the second time um, to do a PhD. And I I spent about two years in that program and then I left because I just felt like that wasn't the right thing for me. So I guess this is my second time out here, but it's definitely home at this point. Are you uh, doing school there now? No, so I was. Um, okay. I was pursuing a PhD um, in urban planning in the kind of out of the same department that I'd done my master's in, but I just uh, I just wasn't feeling it. I got a pretty good glimpse of what life in academia looked like, and I just was like, "This is this is not for me." <laughs> yeah. Um, so now I'm you know I'm working doing stuff around uh, you know Measure One Ten the drug decriminalization legislation that passed in 2020. And I still write and do research um, like journalistically because I was doing that back in Pittsburgh before I came back yeah. out here. Yeah, I read your articles you sent me and you're a really good writer. So it's it definitely learn a lot by reading what you wrote. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. And you said, you know, Morgan. Yeah. She's so from, I've never, I get to pronounce yeah. it right, Oregon. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've never actually met her, but we're like you know, Twitter friends and, yeah. and colleagues and stuff. She's, um, I mean, she's an amazing, you know, advocate and, and writer and she's on the state of Oregon's measure 110 oversight and accountability council, which was responsible for dispensing. I think it's like $300 million of cannabis tax dollars that are going into funding substance abuse and, and harm yeah. reduction that were part of the decriminalization bill that was passed. Um, measure 110. So we've talked about it on this podcast before with Morgan, but in the state of Oregon, there's total drug decriminalization on every substance. So you can't uh, go to prison for possessing drugs, essentially. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So decriminalized everything, um, you know, smaller amounts. And then in addition to the decriminalization provided, you know, all of this funding, I believe it's around 300 million for harm reduction, housing, whole kind of assortment of funds surrounding substance use disorder and kind of the ills that come with that. So it's it's really exciting. I mean, it's, it's really yeah. just, you know, just starting uh, the funds are just starting to be dispensed you know, now, which is great. And then, I mean, another part of the way the legislation works, which is probably one of the the weaker points, but it was, you know, I think part of how they got it passed was that, so the way it's supposed to work in terms of citations is that the police, when they would have before, you know, arrested somebody for a small possession charge, now they are supposed to give them a ticket and to avoid paying the fine for the ticket, there's a number that they can call basically like a, like a state run hotline to do a quick assessment around their substance use or abuse or whatnot, and then get directed towards the appropriate resources. Although over half of the counties in Oregon during the first year of measure 110 didn't issue a a single citation. And so the media kind of tries to 
you know, then give Measure 110 a bad rap, like, oh, this isn't working, when in fact, that's probably one of the, I'm not going to say least significant aspects of the program. It's still huge that people aren't getting arrested. And yeah. in addition to that, you know, whether or not these citations get written is probably not going to make or break somebody getting help if they want it. That's great. I mean, it's almost like a Portugal model, Portland, Portugal. <laughs> uh <laughs> So let's talk about your history, if you don't mind. From that article, 2014, you had a, like a painful um, bacterial inve- infection in your in your stomach. That's kind of how you started to get on opioids. Yeah, pretty much. I got something called C. diff or Clostridium difficile, which is a pretty aggressive bacterial infection. Usually, it's seen in folks who are who are older, like at least like over sixty. And if you're older and you get it, it can it can be fatal. If you're younger and you get it, it's, it's not fatal, but it can definitely you know mess up everything about your stomach and kind of digestive system. And so, yeah, I mean, it it pretty much came down to. I'm pretty sure I got it in Nicaragua, and then uh, I was doing some work down there, and then I came back to. Pittsburgh. And I've always had a sensitive stomach. So I wasn't feeling good for a while. But I was just kind of ignoring it like, oh, I guess like my stomach's just flaring up like it's probably just, you know, IBS or something like that. But then I wound up, you know, getting diagnosed with C. diff. And then shortly after pretty much just had this one really horrible night when I was, you know, I lived alone, I woke up, I was in like the worst pain of my life, felt like I was dying called an ambulance on myself. They, you know, took me to the hospital. They didn't really give me any resolve as to what was going on, but they sent me home with a whole lot of Percocet, you know, Mm. with refills. And, um, you know, I'd never done opiates recreationally, like a a whole lot, but I had a few times and I, you know, it was always my my drug of choice. I knew I had a major taste for them. Mm. And so that's kind of what what sparked everything, you know, kind of that, that classic story <laughs> that we hear all the time. <laughs> so this was like two years before the CDC guidelines that kind of triggered doctors into not prescribing hardly any opioids anymore. Yeah, and that story was really good about um, you stayed in a three-quarter house in Carrick, and Carrick's mm-hmm. a neighborhood in Pittsburgh that there is a lot of overdoses in there. I think you even talked about the overdoses in Allegheny County, and I think a lot of them happened right in that neighborhood where you were, Carrick. Yeah, Carrick is 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 a little rough you know what i mean i mean i Hmm. I love it i love the the roughness right but carrick and really you know a lot of those neighborhoods in the in the southern part of the city of of pittsburgh are you know pretty were hit pretty hard um just by everything opioid related beachview if you're not from pittsburgh you're not going to know but yeah it was it was a part of the city that was definitely you know hit very hard and that you know i don't live in pittsburgh anymore but that i imagine is still kind of you know reeling from from all that yeah a three-quarter house is kind of like what is that like it's like halfway between a halfway house and a full way house i mean three-quarter houses so halfway houses are like actual treatment programs that are like monitored and have to be like licensed by the state and things like that whereas three-quarter houses and this is why there's a lot of criticism around them and you have some three-quarter houses that aren't so great or really pretty much independent there's hardly any regulation at all the one that i was at i i felt was pretty solid it wasn't like a so-called flop house where it's like you know you can use and nobody cares and you don't get drug tested it was like you know you had to have a job you know you get drug tested when you come in the only time i saw anybody get tested more than once was if they suspected that they you know, were using or that or that they were high or, or whatnot. But um, yeah, it was a good place for me to be while I was there. I just, I was recently out of a long-term relationship. I knew I wasn't ready to be on my own yet. I probably, if I could have, would have gone back to um, my mom's house, but I had been using, you know, heroin and fentanyl under her roof and lying about it for like the month before that. So she was like, yeah, you're not coming back here. And that was the right decision. I'm glad that she, that she drew that line. Yeah. She was just kind of like doing some tough love. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that wasn't also wasn't my first attempt at stopping opiates. I first went to a rehab and, and tried to get clean and well, was successful for about a year at like the end of 2016. I got like about a year under my belt and I was pretty much fully absent from everything at that time. And then I had some other medical issues started flaring up later found out that through a surgery that what was flaring up was actually endometriosis. But, you know, I pretty much spent 2018 
to like 2019, just kind of having a lot of smaller relapses, you know, so Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't like, Oh, this is the first time you've, you've tried to do this. It was like, Hey, okay. Like you've tried a few times and you know, there's no shame in that, but like, you know, let's try something different this time. Cause I'd come, I just gotten out of rehab and that was the third time I'd gone to inpatient rehab. Well, the last time, but I did go a total of uh, three times. Once I went somewhere in Arizona and then the other two times I was at Gateway and Pittsburgh, which if you know, Pittsburgh, it's like the main rehab, you know, uh-huh. network and they do yeah. Medicaid and all that stuff. About the house as well. They require you to do it uh, like a 12 step program. And you said in the article that actually you actually like that program. I, I've had a couple of guests that didn't really like 12 step programs. Uh, maybe it's because of uh, like a religious aspect or something like that. But but what did you like about it? I mean, for anybody listening, that's like maybe considering options for recovery. I guess to the first part of the question, we were technically required to go to 12-step meetings, although nobody was really checking. Although, you know, I um, I did go quite a lot, and my feelings about 12-step fellowships have changed considerably over the last few years for a number of reasons, but it definitely worked for me as a primary source of support for a while. You know, there are plenty of cons to 12 steps, but I mean, the pros, I, I guess it was just ultimately the people. Mostly I met some some really good people that were good friends of mine who were, you know, very supportive. Um, they weren't they weren't judgmental. I, you know, I did actually work the steps with a sponsor. Um, I've, I found that helpful and I feel like it gave me a lot of kind of clarity about, I mean, re- really just like the patterns that I've been cycling through my my whole life. And I didn't grow up religious or anything like that, so... I didn't have like a negative connotation about capital G God, if if there is one or, you know, the notion of a higher power. I was able to, you know, kind of latch onto that, which is something that a lot of people really, you know, really struggle with. I think in a lot of ways, like just the probably biggest strength within 12 step meetings is just that it provides you with structure that hopefully feels safe to just kind of help you or in my case, you know, help me just sort of just kind of get back to, you know, a normal functional life, you know, without the the regular use of, of any substances. And yeah. now, like I said, my feelings have changed considerably. I'm not completely absent anymore, but I still do go out here in Oregon to about one AA meeting a week and I still have a sponsor. And so the way that I kind of conceptualize my recovery is I refuse to be like shoved into this binary that I think exists in a really unfortunate way where it's either like, oh, you're pro 12 step or you're pro harm reduction. I I don't think that they have to be mutually exclusive. So I kind of say I have like, you know, one foot in the harm reduction space and another foot in the, in the 12 step space, even though, you know, like I said, there's plenty about 12 steps that, you know, that are not great, but I guess there's, there's enough value there for, for, for me to stay, you know, at least for now. And, and it seems like a lot of people develop drug habits because they're lonely, and it seems like that kind of provides some kind of community of people going through the same shit. Okay, so let's talk about how Kratom came into the picture. You were refused pain meds for your endometriosis, which, if anybody doesn't know, that just seems like the most painful thing, and you Google it, it's kind of like a uterine issue, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, it just seems like, I mean, I'm not a woman, so I don't, have, I don't have a uterus, so I wouldn't know, but it just seems very painful. Is that when you discovered Kratom? So, I had used Kratom a little bit years before that when I was trying to get off of oxycodone like by myself without having to go to any treatment. So I'd used it a little bit to manage some withdrawals, but not too extensively because I ended up just going back to oxy, you know, anyway, um, and it didn't really last. You know, yeah, I went to an ER here in Eugene. I was in like crazy intense amount of pain. I had my medical records like with me, like in my hand, because they can't always access records from other health networks being like, hey, mm. this is real. You know, I'm not making this up. Yeah. And yeah, they just outright, you know, denied me pain medication. I don't remember exactly what they said. I mean, it, it was something stupid along the lines of like, oh, like we don't give pain meds for like pelvic pain or, or something oh, like that. I don't know. It, it sounded like 
it sounded like BS to me. But ultimately what happened was I left the ER. I was in so much pain. I was like borderline panicking. And I actually called, I called my dad. He's a doctor. And I was like, dad, like, what, what the hell do I do? And he said to me, can you get, can you get Kratom? And I was like, yeah, they, they sell it everywhere. Why? And he was like, you know, go get Kratom. And he, and he told me how much to take too. And I think he was looking at the medical literature in front of him that kind of says five grams or above for more opioid like effects. And so I yeah. went, I got the Kratom. I, I took the five grams and it was like 10 capsules. And, and I mean, it, it worked. It was like a miracle moment, you know, like yeah. I, I think there's a, a really good chance that I would have sought out something like illicit on the street had I not had that option. Cause I was just like, I mean, I could barely, I can barely walk pelvic pain. It's like the worst pain in the world. And so that's kind of what catalyzed my journey into Kratom. And that was about, it was about a year ago. Yeah. That oh, that was just a year ago. Well, it was just a year ago. So is that what you take a day about, like 10 grams or? So I've kind of fluctuated. I generally try not to go over probably like 12 grams a day. So me personally, and this is just me. I haven't heard everybody say this. I know who takes Kratom. I know people who can dose every two, three, four hours. For yeah. me personally, I find Kratom does not have an effect on me if I don't wait, wait at least six hours between each dose for, for me. I, I think maybe it has to do with the mixed agonist antagonist role of the alkaloid, the, the primary alkaloids that partially attacks your opioid receptors, you know, metragenine and 7-hydroxymetragenine. Yeah. Um, and so that's generally the space that I'm in. Sometimes it's a little bit less. It's rarely more. And I also had kind of a couple month period where I was, um, where I was taking extracts, which I would probably not recommend to people, but I'm the type of person where I like to experiment. I like to kind of see what's what. Yeah. But at this point, I just take the the powder because those extracts were completely ruining my tolerance. Although I think there's a role for them. I think that they're – I worry that the yeah. extracts are like going to be what gets Kratom banned. So I just try to, you know, just do the powder. I mean, they're probably – in terms of like contamination and lead, they're probably – safer because you're actually like during the extraction process it leaves out not only leaf material but the rest of the other junk that might be in there however i think i think they're too strong yeah. and too easy to take kind of uh it's mm -hmm. a lot easier to take them than uh like say like two or three teaspoons of, of leaf powder and it's kind of like exactly. I, it, just the leaf powder is like self-limiting and uh exactly. yeah and and like the fresh leaf in its in its native countries is you know you got to pick it off the trees you got to make it they simmer it for hours and it's it's a whole ritual so that kind of it's almost like if we just had coca leaf tea here it would be no problem i don't think people would be uh cocaine right. would be as be as popular and fun as it is no i i agree with you completely on pretty much all fronts lately i've been you know reading a lot about extracts looking into some particular brands that i was taking to just kind of understand them better and make sure that they were legit it's hard for me to conceptualize honestly why certain companies would make extracts other than to create a regular somewhat physically dependent customer because like you said they yeah. are so strong they completely ruin your tolerance to the the powder and i find the powder to be i mean the powder is to me a better more effective feeling whereas the extracts are kind of more one-dimensional even though all metragenine gets metabolized into 7-oh 7-oh is still stronger <laughs> so when you get yeah. really high 7-oh contents in the extracts i think that's where it gets you know yeah a little a little muddy. I mean, granted, if you're dealing with like crazy intense pain, like I, I think that, you know, they're, they're worth using and, you know, it's good that they're there. But other than that, it's hard for me to, or if you were like getting off of like a heavy fentanyl or heroin habit or something like that, and you don't want to be sick, I could see them being appropriate for that too. But other than those two things, it's it just doesn't feel, I wouldn't recommend people use them other than like, Unless they were in one of those two situations, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I wrote an article by the comedian Tom Segura, whom I, I'm a fan of, and I watch his podcast. But he's talking about, yeah, this stuff's cool, and I get geeked out on it, and I uh, drink a 
extract shot and uh he drinks like a whole thing where they even i think even like some of the responsible companies say take put two drops in your coffee or something which is how you should take it but people have to realize it's like you never drank before and you're starting with whiskey people got to be careful with that and and it, and it does suck because then you know they start developing a habit and then they just say it's kratom they don't they don't differentiate like the average like local news reporter doesn't really know much about it so they're going to go for the drug horror fiction genre what that i call it and they're gonna go yeah. oh this person was addicted to kratom or there was kratom on the scene of this person's death we just had another one in pennsylvania that was like that what? And, oh, uh, when was that that was uh august 19th but i haven't seen any like autopsy or anything we talked about it on our last uh we do like a news segment every once a month and the report was pretty good as far as local news goes uh but it was like a few weeks later and they could have obtained like the uh, toxicology report by then, I think, to show yeah. that he probably had fentanyl in his system, which is oh, yeah. usually just like with everything. It's usually what comes up on, in some of these deaths, on some of these unfortunate deaths. What about, yeah, Kratom's role in, in the um, decriminalization in Oregon? Kratom in Oregon is, you know, is, is legal. It hasn't been, you know, outlawed here. Yeah. I don't see that happening. I don't know why it would. But I do think that with the decriminalization bill and kind of people broadening their thinking around recovery and medication-assisted treatment and and things like that, you know, it's, it's not like, I mean, we have plenty of like, you know, Suboxone clinics, you know, methadone, which all that stuff is, all that stuff is great. But I just, I wonder if there will be a more formal role for Kratom at, at some point, because I once read somebody, they called Kratom like hippie Suboxone. And I was kind of like, <laughs> they're not wrong, you know, because like from what I understand, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm not a scientist, but I have like you know a working knowledge of kind of how this receptor stuff works. Like yeah. buprenorphine, the active ingredient in in suboxone, and you know, metragenine and seven hydroxymetragenine function pretty similarly, you know, in terms of being agonist antagonist when it comes to, you know, like medication assisted treatment, opioid replacement therapy. I've never personally been on Suboxone or methadone, but I know a lot of people who have, and I know that it can be very, very hard to, if you get to a point where you want to get off of those and there's nothing wrong with being on that stuff for the rest of your life. Let me just like, there's nothing wrong with that. But for people who feel like they're ready to make that step, heard a lot of people find success with with kratom so i guess i would just hope that as we just kind of broaden you know our thinking and and our horizons that i would just like to educate people who work in treatment and harm reduction more about kratom because i just i think that there's a, a pretty clear a pretty clear role for it and i think it's it's such a dynamic plant and we're only like really beginning to truly understand how it works since there's not a ton of medical literature on it. But I think at least from hundreds of thousands of anecdotal experiences of people being like, hey, you know, this is this is what got me off heroin. This is what got me off fentanyl. This is what keeps me off of those things that just getting better knowledge to people out there about what their options are. And, and not even just for for opioid use disorder, but and again, this is more like anecdotal and there may be some medical studies on it, but people who use Kratom to cut down on alcohol consumption. Um, yeah. Things like that. It definitely works. So I'll go through like more periods where I don't drink for like a whole month. I used to do that one month a year. Now I'm doing it several months a year. So it's Kratom right. works in that it just puts me in a good mood for a portion of the day. I don't have to sit around my stupid anxiety and depression all day. Uh, it, it just it gets gives you the kind of the a uh, little bit of a thing that alcohol gave you, but you're a lot clearer. Yeah. And and my friend's going through the suboxone thing. She was just cut off starting I think yesterday or or next week or something. She's gonna be cut off. She's gonna be down to her last strip of suboxone. And she's like going through hell trying to fucking stretch it out. And I gave her Kratom 
And she oh, was yeah. like, that was awesome. I'm like, yeah, I, I've been telling you about this stuff for a while. But it, it's, it's a lot of it is people don't accept. But my question was more on now they're like cutting people off of and they're not really giving painkillers enough to people who need them. And it seems like mm-hmm. two, since 2016, there's a surge in Kratom use. I mean, my friend's just getting cold cut off of Suboxone and she, need, she needs it. And what she she's either going to go to the street and get some shit that might kill her or luckily I have like some good Kratom I can give her so do you think that's like a big factor and why it's becoming more and more more popular it must you know because it has become so insanely hard to get pain medication when you need it because of what happened during the kind of first wave of the opioid epidemic like you know the kind of like Purdue Pharma wave that hit especially areas like Pittsburgh and Appalachia and parts of the Northeast so very hard that now people have become completely terrified. Well, I guess, you know, doctors have become terrified and I I just don't think that they know enough about what the things they're supposed to understand. So yeah, I would think absolutely. The same with people being cut off of their Suboxone or their methadone or whatever type of medication assisted treatment. And I also just think that I feel like there's just more places that that sell Kratom than there than they're used to. So it's like if there's only, let's say there's you're in a town and there's 30 gas stations and 2016 one gas station had Kratom and then by like 2020 like 15 of them do, then there's yeah. just going to be more people who see it, start to Google it, start to ask questions, maybe go on Reddit and you're like, oh, this person has fibromyalgia and their doctor cut them off their oxy script and like this is the only way that that they can function. I think I'll go ahead and try it. I, I'm sure that's played a, a major role. I don't see how it how it couldn't, you know, with like given the givens. Do you see it different like from the doctors in Oregon uh, now that like drugs are decriminalized or I, I don't know if that would even be uh, a link. I, th- I think that CDC actually changed their language uh, mm-hmm. around prescription stuff, but I don't know if it would be different out there than, than it would be here with the uh, prescribing. I know that it's you know stricter everywhere than it than it used to be i will say it's not completely impossible here i did at one point this is like before i even started on on kratom this was probably like a few months before the er here pretty much told me to get lost was again having similar endometriosis symptoms wound up going to an urgent care and they, I got them to prescribe me like a handful of like Tylenol threes, which, which might not sound like much, you know, like the Tylenol, Tylenols with codeine and, and things like that. And, you know, in the urgent care, like within the individual offices, they have like these uh, pieces of paper taped to the wall saying like, we will only prescribe opioids under these like very specific conditions. And here are the, here are the things we won't prescribe it for. I think it's probably somewhat hit or miss but i mean i i think it's i think it's strict everywhere and there were still lawsuits tied to different pharmaceutical companies and you know mismarketing of opioids there was a johnson and johnson settlement where there's millions of dollars that some places in oregon saw that money oregon has a long history of just a lot of people struggling with drugs and and a lot of mental illness so i feel like this this isn't new to them but at the same time just from a purely geographic perspective, Oregon wasn't as holistically inundated with opioids as Pennsylvania or West Virginia was yeah. years ago. Hillbilly heroin is coming up from Florida. But, yeah. uh, and so what about uh, any side effects you experience with Kratom? A lot of people get gastrointestinal shit with it. Have you ever yeah. had any like weird side effects with Kratom? Um, I mean, there's definitely constipation. Um, yeah. I kind of, with my stomach issues, I'm kind of naturally backed up sometimes anyways. But I find that that constipation is not that hard to treat. You know, if you eat a diet that's pretty high in fiber, um, if you drink a lot of water, yeah. you know, take 
take magnesium, maybe take like a stool softener or Miralax once a week or, or something like that. You know, I think that that's something that you can, you know, remedy pretty easily. Other than that, I, I haven't really experienced anything. Well, not from the powder, not from the powder. I felt some more side effects from the extracts. Honestly, I, I felt like the extracts, this is part of the reason I, I stopped taking them. I don't, I don't take them anymore is I felt like they made me somewhat irritable when they kind of started to like lose their effect. Whereas that's not something I ever experienced with the powder. And I think that again, just has to just speaks to the, their strength and they're kind of being more, you know, single action in terms of just having those, those two, those two alkaloids. But again, with the, with the powder, I've never, I haven't experienced that. So yeah, mainly just the kind of some of the constipation, which you get with anything that's going to work on your opioid receptors. So do you take tolerance breaks or, and the thing I ask everybody that's been on uh, opiates and then also Kratom is, are opiate withdrawals anything like Kratom withdrawals? I do take tolerance breaks. I actually just took one pretty recently. I took about a 72-hour break, and yeah. I was pretty wowed by how much how much my tolerance was reset within the span of, of three days. I mean, it was – which, which is a great thing, right? Yeah. Because I never experienced anything like that when I was on actual opioids. I found the withdrawals to be pretty mild. The way that I put it to to somebody the other day, I said, you know, with those with the seventy two hour break, I was like, look, if you didn't tell me that I was in some mild withdrawal, I probably would have just thought I had a little bit of a cold. Like I wouldn't have yeah. thought it was withdrawal. But I will say, kind of asterisk, I for some reason, I don't know if it's because my metabolism is slower, experienced pretty mild withdrawals across the board. The times that I have gone into full on withdrawal from you know actual opioids, like yeah, it was. It was bad, but it was definitely not as bad as kind of what I'd heard about some of the people around me. But I think that I think the Kratom withdrawals are are pretty are pretty mild. I've heard some people, well, not directly. I mean, you know, you'll go on Reddit and you'll hear some people being like, "Oh my God, I was so sick," and blah blah blah. blah. But I was actually I was talking with Morgan Govin about this the other day, and she was saying she was like, "Yeah, I don't think those people have ever like." really gone into withdrawal from like actual opiates before. And that's why I think this is so extreme. And I was like, yeah, I'm inclined yeah. to agree with you because I'd say it's like 10, 20% at most of what withdrawal from actual opioids is like. So for, for me, it was, it was pretty mild. I mean, I'm not saying it was nothing, but it was pretty, it was pretty mild. It wasn't like anything crazy hard to endure. A lot of the media stories are still like uh, this new dangerous drug they're they're they did that with bath salts and crack babies and all that bullshit well you know i'm actually glad you brought up the bath salts thing i think yeah. sometimes people the media especially or even just the general public who don't really know anything about these substances they will like group kratom in like with bath salts which makes no sense right or even try to compare it to cbd which also doesn't make any sense just because it's like oh they were all getting sold at the same store. You saw an ad for them on like the same billboard or whatever. I mean, sometimes like I just forget how little people know since I, you know, this is my lived experience and I, and I pay attention and I research this stuff. The folks just have like absolutely, you know, no idea what they're talking about. And I think the other thing when it comes to, you know, the withdrawals, when you hear about people who are like, you know, these were bad. It's like, look, if you're taking a hundred grams per day, which some people take that, I don't think a lot of people do, yeah. but I've seen posts where people are like, oh, is it anywhere from like, you know, 50 to 80 to a hundred grams per day? <laughs> like, know. of course you got sick. That's in, nobody should take that much Kratom, yeah. you know, like at that point, like, you know, you're probably just completely miserable and I'd feel bad for people who are, yeah. who are in that state. And I think it's like Kratom is, is like, almost is like most things that have medicinal value, but that also have psychoactive effects. I think cannabis is a pretty good comparison to be like, you can have anything. There's a whole spectrum of relationships you can have, right? You can have a purely medicinal relationship with cannabis. You can have yeah. a purely recreational relationship with it. You can have something that's mixed and you can use it for something. You can use it appropriately, whether that's just to feel good or to medicate pain. And then, you know, you can become dependent on it and abuse it. And I think Kratom is, is no different. You know, I think 
some creative advocates get really defensive when they're like, oh, you know, like don't call it a, addictive and da da da. Do I think it's super addictive, like anywhere close to actual opioids? No. Can it? Can you get addicted to it? You know, yeah. yeah. And your past with other drugs is probably gonna, you know, dictate that as as well. But I I don't think that like the majority of regular kratom users are you know quote unquote like hooked in this kind of you know colloquial sense you know i'm sure that some people definitely definitely are but i don't i don't think that's most people have you ever had a doctor that you could talk to about your kratom use or are they mostly just dismissive yeah i talked to two different doctors about it and they were actually both they didn't really give me a rough time or or anything like that i I feel like every time i talk to them i end up educating them on kratom right yeah um one doctor where i mentioned to her that i was that i was taking it or or something like that and she was like Oh, okay. And then she was like, but you know, you got to be careful because some of the stuff's adulterated or it's got these crazy high concentrations. And I'm like, you are talking about liquid extracts. And at the time, that's, that's not what I was taking. Right. And I also, if you do your research, it's not that hard to find out which, which brands have been, there's one study that looks exactly at that about the adulteration and they name, they name the brands, Right. Um, yeah. And so, it's, you know, if you're not if you're not taking those, if you're getting them from a, a reliable vendor, you're, you're you're probably, you know, OK. And then the other doctor I mentioned it to, she was just like, oh, yeah, you know, Kratom can be affected for pain. So they were pretty cool about it. But I have also had doctors in the past where I would never said anything. You know, I think you got to know the doctor well before you bring that type of stuff up. Yeah. Also, at the same time. I'm, I'm out here in like decriminalization land, right? Where Kratom's probably like the least of anybody's worries. Yeah, yeah. Um, right now, but I mean, I think it's always good if, assuming you have a doctor that you trust, to just to let them know. Although at the same, although at the same time, it's it's not like they're really they're not going to know more than you, most likely. Yeah, you know. Yeah, really. Which <laughs> so is- it's not like they're going to know. Oh, yeah, like you know, Kratom as a drug interaction with these, with, you know, X, Y, and Z, cause it hasn't, it hasn't been studied. It's like anything you, you have to, you have to trust the doctor and it's probably better to tell them than to not tell them. But at the same time, if, if they don't think it's like super great, but they don't really have a reason to say that, it's just like what they heard, then I would take that with a grain of salt. Did you ever find yeah. out anything about that company that you were looking at up and they claim to have like some kind of patent on extracts? Yeah. So I talked to some people who who are scientists who know people who worked at that company. They pretty much assured me that, you know, they're not adulterating, you know, anything and that it is just just a very concentrated extraction. In terms of whether or not that patent is real, nobody's been able to answer that question for me. And that's something that I'm trying to investigate myself, because even if it's a private patent, it should still be listed as existing with the U.S. Patent Office, I was trying to use the U.S. Patent Office's website, which like doesn't work at all. So I wasn't able to search for it on there. But I do want to continue that just because and I could be like totally wrong. But I just I just don't believe that like some Kratom company has an in-house scientist that's patented a process for extraction. I just don't believe it. This isn't like a regulated substance at all. So it's like, when, since it's unregulated, like why why would you need patents? And also just like, who's going to have that kind of money? And like, what chemists do even know who would be specializing in that if they're not also writing or publishing about it? It's just from a logistical standpoint, just doesn't sound like it's real. But I mean, I could be wrong. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it's real. <laughs> 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 yeah, Kratom companies are weird because I know there's people out there with good intentions, but it's it's hard to tell sometimes sometimes. <laughs> you know what? This is so this is so wild. I um I pretty much just get my Kratom at, at like one place here in Eugene. It's pretty much just like a smoke shop. And I went in there the other day and I see this new brand of Kratom on the shelf. The name was Nodzilla. Like nod, like nodding, <laughs> not bullet. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, what kind of, like who came up with this name? Yeah. You know, it's, so I think, I think most 
companies do have good intentions, but it's like anything, you know, you're always going to have a slice of folks that, that don't. And I also just think in terms of like retaining its reputation and trying to, you know, not get it banned. I'm like, why would you call anything that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like I really think it should be sold like kombucha tea or something like that. Like (laughs) they could have went that route and then every grandma would have it in her uh, cupboard (laughs) next to her hard candy and tea and probably be able to use it safely. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's definitely a problem with the marketing. It's kind of like a gray area market. I'm also just astonished by just, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be by Bush, but just like the sheer number of Kratom companies out there. You know what I mean? And I feel the same way about like CBD and like, you know, Delta 8. I'm like, how in the world are there this many different companies like it just it just seems like unfathomable like even with the market being as big as it is you know what i mean like i could go into i mean they sell kratom like every like everywhere here and i could go into different places and there are some brands i will see everywhere but then there's other brands where it's like this is only at this store that's only at that store and then i'll like never see it again you know but at the same time it seems like pretty much every place that sells Kratom, whether it's a smoke shop or a gas station, you know, they're not getting it from the vendor. They're getting it from a distributor who represents multiple companies. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, they change like th- their companies are just brand names too. They change them. Like the guy they got, I, the guy that got busted in uh, Florida, I think it was last year or something. It was like the last big FDA bust had like multiple brands. And then he was like back in business within a couple of weeks. And he's just changed all the brand <laughs> names. Like the big, the big one, big chain. That's the biggest chain had tons of lead in it from that. Um, uh, professor Walt Prigelic, who he's originally from Altoona, but he teaches at Midwestern. He did his own Kratom uh, study, and he just went around to random places in Chicago and bought Kratom. And uh, he found like levels of lead that if you're taking over 10 grams a day, that it would be toxic over time. I actually know somebody here who got really, who got lead poisoning so bad they had to be hospitalized. Mm. Um, from Kratom and there's actually I'm not really? gonna say the Yeah, really. And I'm I'm not gonna say the name of it, but there's actually a Kratom brand and manufacturer that's about a half hour outside of Eugene that had a major recall because of, you know, lead and other toxic metals that were found in their Kratom. And wow. that stuff was being sold like everywhere locally. So I was like, all right, definitely never buying from that brand, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I think like one of the deaths, uh, uh, this kid in Michigan, he, he like clearly like a severe liver toxicity. I looked up the FOIA, the autopsy mm-hmm. report, and it was just uh, like an extreme level of my tragedy. Uh, like a high level of my tragedy, like 2300 uh, nanograms per, per milliliter, whatever the blood measurement is. That just looks like a lead toxicity. And even in uh, Walt's uh, Dr. Prigelic, his new paper, and I just had him on the podcast again to interview him about his new paper, he had a comparison chart of lead effects and kratom effects reported kratom effects and they're mm. really similar and then there's there's just like tons of lead in the environment in indonesia so right it could be coming from there so it's like once uh thailand's gonna start having a um exporting market so it would be interesting to test multiple shipments from thailand see if there's lead in them versus uh, Indonesia to see if there's lead there to see if it's like an wow. environmental thing or or the one idea that was ch- suggested is that they have old grinding equipment oh, that right. has, yeah that grinds the leaf powder down and it and it has a lead that like shaves off gets into the product but it's not regulated <laughs> so you yeah know, we just we just don't know, which yeah. is which is unfortunate, but at, at the same well, time, well, they got a good law on the books in Oregon, and they actually have money allocated for enforcement, which is with some of these KCPA laws, there's no money allocated for enforcement, but the law is a good first step because they can, if they wanted it to go in and do something, they could shut somebody down if somebody got lead poisoning for one of their products, but Oregon actually has like a million dollars a year or something. It's pretty small 
but for well, okay. actual enforcement of the products. I don't know if it's going to be implemented until maybe January or something. I forget. I forget about the um, the law, but they do have a pretty good law intact. And it's, it's wild to think, too, about the states that have, you know, outlawed Kratom. But I, I do think it's, like, worth worth mentioning. What you see in places like, in like Alabama is then you have Tianeptine coming in and replacing Kratom. And that stuff is bad, like yeah. super bad. Whereas you don't really see Tianeptine in the states where, where, there, where Kratom exists. Like, I've, I've never seen it here. I mean, maybe you can get it somewhere but i pretty much know all the places even the quote-unquote sketchy ones and and you know you don't you don't see it there so it's just like you know we just got to keep it keep it legal in as many places as as we possibly can or it's just like everything else it gets then it gets replaced by something that's actually really bad you wanted to talk about kratom in a medicaid assisted treatment context so we did that for a little bit and you said for your pain and ptsd do you think the ptsd is because i read you know like gabor mate who's you know out of vancouver and he talks about how trauma really almost always the cause of addiction and is that does that have to do with your ptsd maybe the reason why you got um addicted to opioids in the first place yeah i mean i think or is right on on target, I think that trauma plays an immense role in the addictions and dependencies that people develop. And we also know that trauma, it's not just like a psychological thing, like it's a somatic thing too. Like we physically hold trauma in our bodies. Trauma can present itself as chronic pain, as well as a lot of other things. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely grew up with with a decent amount of, of trauma, which I know that mixed with my pain played a a really major role um, in, um, you know, in my, in my addictions, but to, to be honest, and, you know, I'm, I'm super open about all this, but what, there was one specific event a little less than a year ago that, so basically in terms of me starting off with Kratom again, you know, I had the thing that happened with the ER, which was about a year ago. Yeah. Um, and then I was, uh, you know, I wasn't taking it every day after that. You know what I mean? I, I took it for a little while and then I, um, I wasn't really taking it anymore. But then I was sexually assaulted and it, it wasn't like somebody, you know, like like pulled me off the street or, or raped me or anything like that. But it, it was something that didn't go down in a in a consensual way. And and because of my, you know, endometriosis, um, intercourse can be can be very painful. Mm. So because of an incident that happened with that, that's then what also got me back on the Kratom for for a, for a long time at a, at a higher dose because I was just in like so much, I was in physical pain from what had happened. And then it also kind of reignited this PTSD, which I think then took my pain levels and elevated them even more. And I also think it trauma puts us, you know, myself included in like this kind of fight or flight type of type of stage. And sometimes to, to deescalate that, I felt like the, like the Kratom helped with that. So yeah, it plays a major role. Cause I felt like a lot of the PTSD I had from my childhood honestly really subsided. Right. But then I, I had this, you know, really unfortunate incident that happened with this, mm. with this person, which really reignited it. And that was only like maybe two months after the whole thing had happened in the, in the ER. So I had already been having these pain flare ups. Right. Yeah. And then this happened and it really compounded it. And I've really, that's just what makes me so incredibly grateful for Kratom because with those two events having happened, you know, pretty much right next to each other, if Kratom was not there, I can pretty much guarantee you that even if I didn't want to, I probably would have gone onto the street to find something else to quell the physical pain and just the kind of anguish from the fact that, you know, those things had happened pretty yeah. much, you know, back to back. I guess I would just, I guess I just think that we just need just more robust, holistic education about Kratom because I think people yeah. just don't know. I think there's probably a lot of people who could, you know, be helped by it in a, a whole slew of ways who don't know. And I also think that there's just so much, you know, misinformation around it too. If people thinking, oh, like more addictive than heroin, which I've also heard, I'm like, that is so totally not true. Yeah. Um, 
you know, so I just think, you know, like per usual with with a lot of things, we just need to do a better job. And especially with young kids, because right now it's like I say this all the time, like drugs are not drugs anymore. Like there is no more heroin. There's only fentanyl. And then you got the xylazine and the trank and all that out here on the West Coast. There's tons of these fake 30 milligram roxycodones, which are mostly made by cartels, but they're just, just literally like all, all, all fentanyl. And it's like, sometimes I was like, what to say to these kids? Like, Hey, like if you ever see this, like, first of all, don't take it at all. And second of all, you know, if you are curious about altering your consciousness in a way that's not so dangerous or self-medicating your pain in a way that's not so dangerous. Like this is another option. I feel like if somebody would have given me Kratom for the first time and maybe like a three or like a four gram dose, if they didn't tell me that it was mildly working on my opioid receptors, I don't even know if I would have thought that. It would have just been yeah. more like, hey, a really good kind of mildly euphoric cup of coffee or something like that. You yeah. know, it's not, it's not like the same kind of super warm feeling washes over you and you slip into this nod like that's that's not what it is at least not to me it's similar it just doesn't have that like same heaviness with it right Which, yeah. and that makes sense too because we know that it doesn't cause you know respiratory depression um as severely as as other things so yeah you know i feel like if an actual opiate feels like somebody just threw like a down blanket over you then kratom's like somebody handed you a sheet you know? yeah <laughs> that is a good that's a good analogy definitely um any any uh like uh articles or research things you're working on so just... i actually have a piece that i'm working on um which will hopefully lead into a book at one point um cool. or at some point it's not about it's not about kratom, but it is it is recovery, you know, drug and alcohol related. Long story short, the very first AA meeting that I went to when I moved back out to Oregon, it was in the pandemic. I showed up, and at first, I, I really thought I was in the wrong place because I just see all these big burly white dudes on motorcycles with with Harley Davidsons with you know matching like patches. Right? Turns out <laughs> that there's a clean and sober chapter of a 1% outlaw motorcycle gang out here <laughs> in the area. And they play a really big role in their recovery culture. But, and I think that they do provide some benefit or some sense of community to, to the guys that are, that are part of the organization. But at the yeah. end of the day, I mean, this is a sober chapter of a white supremacist methamphetamine manufacturing Whoa. and distributing organization. Yeah. <laughs> so I call them sober Nazis. I'm working on uh, a piece around uh, kind of my experiences with these sober Nazis and different kind of intersections between organized white supremacy and kind of drug and alcohol recovery culture out here in Oregon. Wow. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think Hitler hated smoking, and he was a vegetarian, so, yeah, they can have healthy yeah. habits. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're yeah. they're completely healthy mentally, but, oh, that's awesome. Well, we'll look forward to that, and, and uh, yeah, once you once you put out whatever, whatever, I'll, I'll uh, retweet it, definitely. But, yeah, Joanna, thank you very much for um, talking with me. Thank you, man. I'm really, really glad we we connected. It's been great to be on here. I think, you know, Kratom Science Podcast and the website just play a really integral role in just kind of the direction that we need to be moving in with Kratom education and, you know, science and all that. And it's always good to talk to somebody from my hometown, too. So, yeah, this has been great. Definitely looking forward to her future work. Thank you very much, Joanna Bernstein. Uh, check her out at joanna pgh on twitter uh, links to her articles are in the description please help out the podcast by liking rating reviewing commenting sharing letting your friends know about it the music is risey the song is called memories of thailand kratom science podcast is written and produced by me brian gallagher for kratomscience.com take care <laughs>